Falsche, 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 Akhardi Gale. Welcome to episode 89 of the Rebel Matters podcast. A lot of you might be aware of Margareta from the time that she got arrested and sent to jail in 2014 for breaking onto the runway in protest of Shannon Airport being used as a kind of stopover airport for the US warplanes. And anyone who has been following Margareta over the years will also be aware that she's been arrested on several occasions, sent to jail. She was involved in the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp, which ran from 1981 to the year 2000. She set up a pirate radio station in Galway in 1987 and has been involved in the theatre for her whole life as an author and also a filmmaker. But one point that I think is very important to bring up that Margareta mentioned before we started recording for this episode of the Rebel Matters podcast is that it's important that we don't pigeonhole people into the box of activist or artist or whatever the case may be. If there's anything that can be taken away from this episode, it's that we all have the power and agency to stand up and speak out against things that are wrong and we can all take actions to bring more awareness to those things. I think in general, Margareta has been like the person who sticks the spanner into the spokes of the bicycle with a lot of different causes that were really important and really needed to be highlighted and more awareness brought to them. But Margareta is going to do a much better job at talking about them than I can do in this introduction. But I know that you're really going to enjoy this episode. It has been a fairly hectic few weeks, well, four or five weeks really, since the end of last year and the start of this year to get the show back on the road for 2021. Myself and Vicky have been putting in the long hours, setting up new interviews editing episodes and doing all the background work for the podcast um, to kind of set it up for the year ahead. So I think that the ship has been steadied somewhat and uh, a massive thank you has to go out to all of our supporters and patrons over on patreon.com who are the people who are funding this project and keeping the show on the road and allowing us to do what we love doing which is making these episodes part of the last few weeks has been given over to doing some interviews with the media and a few different newspapers and media outlets and doing those interviews it really has brought into focus the things that the work that goes into the podcast and why we're doing the podcast in the first place it really started off back in 2017 as kind of an excuse for me just to be able to ask people to come on and speak to them in a kind of a long form conversation. And it has really taken off since the start of the pandemic, around about March last year. And I suppose that's because I had more time to give to it. And also because I really wanted to do it, to have some kind of a social outlet during the first lockdown and since then so many people have got in contact with us to say that the podcast has been a good source of company and comfort during these uh, kind of pandemic times and then Vicky came on board as the producer in and around I suppose August or something last year which was essential because I was getting back to work with Ackley after we had opened up after the first extended lockdown and it was in question whether or not I was going to be able to keep the Rebel Matters podcast going and to be honest I think I probably would have had to have stopped doing it back then because of the workload that was involved with getting Ackley back open and off the ground again after the extended closure of the first lockdown. So we've kind of been going from strength to strength from then. Uh, we've got a, had a really nice response to the podcast in 2021 so far and we've got some big plans ahead. And as I was saying earlier, that's all made possible by the support that we're getting from our patrons over on patreon.com forward slash rebel matters. So if you want to become one of those patrons and help us to keep moving in the right direction, then you can go to the Patreon website, find the Rebel Matters there podcast there and uh, pick one of the tiers of support it really makes a massive difference and i just want to say another massive thank you to all of the people who have been supporting us on patreon so far 
Anyway, back to the subject of today's episode with Margareta Darcy. The chat started out with Margareta telling us about the time that she got arrested in Belfast in 1980 and found herself in Armagh Women's Jail on the no-wash protest and the kind of conversation flows on from there. One thing that I will add before we get stuck into the chats with Margareta is that one of my favourite things about the Rebel Matters podcast is the variety in the guests and the variety of subjects that we're discussing from week to week. And I think the real beauty of that is that it gives us a really kind of a wide range of exposures to different topics and different subjects. And apart from getting the opportunity to hear from people telling their stories and sharing their stories with us it opens the door for all of us us included to go and learn more about the stuff that the guests are talking about so when you're listening to this episode with margareta bear that in mind it's impossible to cover everything exhaustively in one podcast episode and especially with someone like Margareta who has got so many stories and has been involved in so many things over the years. But keep an ear out for things that you'd like to go and learn more about during the episode. And then when you finish listening, if something has resonated with you, then that's a really good opportunity to go and find out more about it. So with that, Akarji Gale, episode 89 of the Rebel Matters podcast with Margareta Dorsey, Bonagi Saltas. First time I got arrested was that there was um, a festival in Belfast, student festival, which I and my partner, John Arden, were invited to. And I was invited to a poetry reading in the uh, Ulster Museum with Michael Longley and um, who's the other poet? And the other poet. Anyway, inside this meeting, two paintings had been banned and taken down. One about an H-block march and the other about abortion. And so I went in there. I was invited to the poetry reading. And while they were doing their wonderful poetry, there were two blank spaces where the painting should have been. And so I got a little marker and just began writing H block on one of the things. Well, the response from all these sensitive, beautiful, artistic intellectuals of Belfast, they didn't know what to do, they squeaked. (laughs) And then the attendants were brought in to drag me out. And um, so um, when I was having a little chat while they were waiting for the paddy wagon to take me off, to take me off somewhere or other, um, I was just explaining to him about art and sensuality. And I stroked his cheek very gently and I said, now, what would you say that was? Is it a sensual experience or is it an assault? And his whole body actually began to relax while I was stroking his cheek very gently. And he says it in the soul. And I said, I'll do it again. So I did it again. He said, that's the second assault. I did it the third time. And he said, that's the third assault. <laughs> so I was taken off to Armagh Jail. And um, then at about midnight, um, the glory... I think he's dead now, a very important 
civil rights lawyer. He came to see me and he said, you know, they're thinking of uh, putting you into the lunatic asylum <laughs> because they think you're mad. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't think you're mad. So he said, is there anything I can do for you? And I said, yes, could you get me some cigarettes? So he went and got me some cigarettes. <laughs> but we had a play on at the time while this was going on. At the festival, it was um, about Rala Hine. So that was the first time I was in court. And uh, so I was saying to the judge, who I think was quite amused about the whole thing, and so I wanted the witnesses. I wanted the um, museum attendants to be part of the trial. And so I asked them and I said, were you personally responsible for the taking down of those pictures? And they said, no, we were told to do it. And I suddenly began to understand that they like to use, that you might say, the kind of um, people who you would think would be very prejudiced and I don't want to use a sectarian term, but you know what I mean. But it wasn't them. It was the middle classes. So at my trial, I also wanted Michael Longley to be a witness for me, and he wouldn't be. He said he was a civil servant and couldn't be involved. John Houston, your great poet, he said I was a pseudo-provo. I mean, extraordinary that actually that they left me in the bloody jail, these wonderful gentlemen. So anyway, I had left my things in the jail. So on International Women's Day, the next year is we decided to have a little demonstration outside Armagh because by that time, things had escalated inside Armagh. I don't know if you know the history about what was happening in Armagh with the women, is that the men had come into the jail and had beaten the women up. And the women then had refused to leave their cells. So that's how the um, no wash, uh, the, the beginning happened in Omar. So on International Women's Day, we decided then to support the women who were by this time on the, you know, on the jet protest. And we were all arrested. And um, so 11 of us were arrested. And then we had various court cases. We then got the support of all the Scottish women, Welsh women, English women, women from Europe, all who came to Belfast. And so we had really big demonstrations outside the court. So at one time then, uh, I can't remember the name of the magistrate, uh, he wouldn't allow us to be in court for the trial. So we were tried without us being there. So I think I was given uh, three months. But the big problem when you go to jail in the North is what you do when you go in there. <laughs> are you going to be treated as an ordinary criminal or are you going to be treated as a political prisoner? Now, as I was not a member of... Um, Sinn Féin. I had been a member of the official Sinn Féin down south and I thought, well, now, are they going to want to accept me? So you had all these little negotiations when I went in there and I said, well, I think you've got to explain to the women about that I had been the officials. I wasn't now, so they said they would accept me. But to actually get into where the women are, so what we were told is, so as soon as you're arrested and you go in, what you do is you throw all your piss into the, into the corridor and immediately then you're whisked off to the Republican side. So it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to go to jail in the North. Did you join the no-wash protest when you were in Irma? The no-wash, yeah. What were the conditions like there? Well, what were the conditions like? Well, we were locked up for... Uh, 23 and a half hours, and I uh, put our shit on the wall, 
I'm a fed. I wrote a book about it. Tell them everything if you want to have a look at it. We'll tell you about everything that was going on there. Mm-hmm. So I was there when Mairead Farrell was there, who was there, who was assassinated in, in the uh, in Gibraltar. In, in Gibraltar, yeah. So what we found is your free-living libertarian men did not want to mention about the women's conditions because of blood, because of menstruation. Are you um, referring to, say, the men in the Republican movement? They didn't want to know about it. It was Father Des Wilson, actually, who began to highlight what was happening in Armagh. And the other thing they didn't want to think about was the internal searches. So anything to do with vaginas, menstruation, childbirth, they didn't want to know anything at all about that. It was just too, too taboo. Extraordinary, isn't it, where you're in the middle of a struggle, that they would think that it is more important not to mention the fact that women have periods and they had to put the blood on the walls, that they prefer to bomb rather than actually open their minds to the reality of what happens to a human body. Mm. I mean, I'm really annoyed. I'm still annoyed about this, actually. The fact is that the women in Amar have not been given their rightful place of the torture, incredible torture that they had to endure, which the men in the age blocks did not have to endure. The men in the age blocks were not internally searched when a woman was pregnant. They didn't have to stand when they had a period and have blood coming down their legs and be surrounded by men who just laughed at them. And what I feel strongly about is is that we know the conditions of what happened in Abu Ghraib when the, um, the US military were ridiculing the religion of the people who were being tortured the same way as in Amar. Is they ridiculed the women, is they knew these women, 17-year-olds who were virgins, and yet they poked their fingers up their vaginas and broke their virginity. Is that rape? It is rape. Mm -hmm. You know? And this injustice has got to be, has got to be recognized. And also the fact is that the women in Armagh, and certainly the men have said this, because of the resistance of the women in Armagh is that that strengthened the men's resistance because because some of the women, if they had their children born there, they then had to give the children away or be brought up by the parents, by the grandparents who didn't even know that they were their mother. You don't know anything about this. Do you not know anything about this? I am aware of the struggle. For God's sake! (laughs) Sorry for joking. But you've got to know your history. You've got to know the violation of the, of, 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 not only the British forces, but we certainly know is that when a lot of the women came out, is that the men also were traumatized. There was a lot of domestic violence, you know, afterwards. And there was no counseling then in the IRA of Sinn Féin, is they didn't counsel anyone to be able to mitigate about what was happening. Mm. But you really have got to understand that because there should be cases against the British Army of torture, of rape to the women in Armagh. And talking to you with your wild-eyed innocence... Well, like I am aware of 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 like of the various elements of the struggle in our material. Like, when I, I totally agree with you. It's something that needs to be highlighted more, and something that has been downplayed for sure. With the record of history, like it, it hasn't got as much exposure as the struggle in the H blocks has. But it's interesting that you mentioned Father Des there as well as one of the yeah. people who was highlighting the mm. the struggle for the women yeah. in our material. Oh yes, you know, Father Des Wilson was fantastic, absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. Because he got these books out, uh, 
with the pictures of the women and about what was happening, you know, but it, but we still had a struggle to get the men in the RA to admit H block in our mark. Yeah. You should talk to Bernadette about that. Do you remember what um, Jim Gibney said to you whenever you said it to him? Well, he got a fright because he literally thought we were going to form a, a military army. So from then on, it was Omar. I mean, I'm not saying we, we weren't the only ones who were pushing this, but we certainly went to him and said, look, if you don't bloody put Omar in with, along with the H-Prox Omar, we're going to be the women's army. <laughs> <laughs> and you know the way that with the, the way that Donald Trump has been left office now and Biden has come in and he's kind of been heralded as... Of kind of a fresh start in America. Like, what do you think about that? About Trump? I know about Trump leaving and about Biden coming in and Biden being sort of heralded as... Biden being held. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was from, from the point of view as a warmonger, it was probably Biden. I mean, remember, Trump never started a war. He did not believe in wars. But Biden, I don't really have much hope because, I mean, here we have in Ireland, we have Shannon. We're meant to be a neutral country. And we have our representative now at the UN on the Security Council saying is there were peace-loving and negotiations. And yet you have the violation. Two people who we don't know, the planes passing through Shannon. It's, it's hypocrisy, isn't it? So what is happening at Shannon Airport at the minute? What's happening at Shannon Airport is civilians... Civilians don't go there. Most of the Ryanair have been suspended. But the US military go there. Their planes are still going there. Have you been there? I, haven't been, I haven't been to Shannon in years. How about a little visit there when the COVID is over? You tell me what day and I'll be there. Will you? 100%. I know. I know, but it's quite interesting that somehow or other is that the in Ireland there doesn't seem to be that awareness about exactly our complicity in the wars. I mean, it, we have a great lifestyle now. We can marry who we want. We can have abortion. We can have divorce. We can have everything. But we don't mind killing people we don't know, do we? Where do you or we think don't that- think about it, shall we say. Where do you think that complicity comes from? Where does it come from? I think it comes from the story. Everyone's always going on about how we love stories. So we don't have a story of a plane that goes through Shannon, goes to a village kills all the villagers and we don't have a story that says that in the village there is an Irish person. If there was an Irish person in the village then we would all be in tears wouldn't we? And if there was an Irish mother in the village, if there was an Irish gay man in the village or a nun, well actually at the moment (laughs) I don't know whether they would have all that sympathy for the nuns of you, what I've done with you, maybe. But it's interesting, isn't it? So you don't have any real empathy or imagination unless you know the person. Or unless you think you know the person. And so all the ones who have died of COVID and we see the pictures of the 104-year-old woman who's inside and the family are coming along and they make a little cake and candles. and Maybe we should get rid of stories. Maybe we should... Well, like I said, the story about what was happening in Amar. Maybe we need to tell different kinds of stories and analyse them and say, well, where does the story come from? Can I ask you a question about... Um what you were saying there about people not having, say, compassion for others because of the fact that they're, you know, over the seas in a different country and there's no Irish people there. Do you think that, is that, does that, does that raise questions about the whole um, concept of patriotism? On the other hand, 
the Irish people, when it's presented to them, I mean, 77% of the Irish people actually don't want shaman to be used. And certainly when one is going out, it's something, but it doesn't, it hasn't affected them in a personal way. So even if we talk about what was happening in the North, people here on the whole is, they turned a blind eye. Now, admittedly, there was the censorship, but they could only relate it to the way that the news related the troubles, wasn't mm -hmm. it? So bombs went off. And then once again, you had a story of somebody who was bombed. And they could empathize with that individual, but they couldn't, couldn't empathize with what was happening on the whole. What do we do to bridge that gap? Is that is that kind of do you see where that maybe where the arts might come in there to try and close that gap for people and and uh, show that empathy or help people to see that empathy? Well, also I think it's a question because I hate to say this. I know Michael D has constantly gone out. Is that we have got to think. We have got to use our brains as well as our heart and tie the two together. And we don't. So we use our heart. I mean, there is no one more emotional. I mean, I'm sure that you've heard it. And they'd say, oh, it breaks my heart. Oh, my heart was broken. Well, the heart is broken even if they can't get a kind of new iPad. I mean, the language is extraordinary about how our hearts are always being broken and how we suffer. Now, maybe we don't suffer. Maybe we're just being sentimental. I think there's a difference between real empathy and sentimentality, which... In many ways, I think that a lot of the films um, promote sentimentality, happy endings. Was the pirate radio station that you set up in your kitchen uh, sort of a vessel for trying to um, get around the censorship that was there at the time and give people a voice who had been marginalized, marginalized in, in society? Yeah, absolutely, because when, when one actually um, thinks of the extraordinary censorship that we had at that time, Section 31, you couldn't, no member of the IRA could go and talk. In England, they used to have actors coming and talking for the IRA. So the censorship, you could not talk about birth and you couldn't talk about death. And you couldn't talk about sex and what was happening in between. So that basically our whole lives were really restricted to not being able to question any of these things. I mean, thank goodness now, um, that is over. But the one thing that we don't question, which is not on the television or on the radio or the newspapers, is our complicity with war. So there's always a new kind of censorship that comes in. Where do you see that our complicity to war exists at the minute? Well, you see, the interesting thing about Shannon Airport, the only time that the media take any notice is if we get arrested and have trials. You know? But I think... I think your podcast, if you really began to think about it and examine it to ask any contributor who comes in about what their feelings are. We don't question each other enough. So you have somebody who will make a great speech and talk about Shannon and everything, but then you get somebody else coming along. And the questioner doesn't connect the two things and just saying, oh, by the way, what do you think about our complicity with war? So everything is in little boxes, isn't it? The groups that I really admire, actually, or the Jehovah Witnesses and the groups who are out in the street every day about God or Christianity, because they are there all the time. And they talk about Jehovah Witnesses when they knock on the door. 
But we, why are we not like that? I mean, I, I, I was on a tube in, in, I was on the bus in London and this evangelist got up and immediately began preaching. We don't do anything like that, do we? We'd be terrified of actually standing in the bus and says, our neutrality is at the moment in danger. Please, citizens, wake up. Why don't we do anything like that? What we like is if we go on a march, and if there's enough people on the march, and then we can all shout together and go home. But we don't stop people at a bus stop, do we, and say, oh, look, have you heard the latest news, what's happening? At the supermarket, in a queue, we don't come along and tap somebody on the shoulder and say, oh, did you know, you know, something such a plane has just landed at Shannon? We keep it all secret, don't we? We have to proclaim the word everywhere we go. What has been the thing that has allowed you to do that so consistently over the decades? I told you, it's really quite interesting because if you actually look at the at the history of the church, which was always uh, turbulent, really, wasn't it? So St. Thomas of Aquinas, who was one of the four forefathers of the church, he was short and fat, and they used to make fun of him. And then they suddenly said, oh, look, there's a cow flying outside the window. And he went, because he did not believe in telling lies. And if you take the other ones, if you take somebody like um, St. Catherine of Siena, who actually went and confronted, confronted the, I think there were two popes at the time who were quarreling. I mean, there are wonderful stories of these people. I mean, if you take St. Francis. Now, I might say that I'm a militant atheist, but I believe in stories, in, in the, you know, in that sense. I mean, if you, if you take, say, Dominic and Scholastica, they didn't like what the church was doing, so off they went and they, and, and they, and they made their own order. I mean, they're wonderful, these people, aren't they? And because we are meant to be secular, the mere fact that I'm talking about these things, say, oh, because most people actually don't know anything about their They don't know anything about the history of their religion, do they? I mean, the training has actually been pretty good. I mean, um, Dominicans remember order preachers, but also the Dominicans, they were the ones responsible for the witch hunting. We really have to know, we have to know all these stories. Um, I read somewhere that you were friends with Brendan Behan. Well, I wouldn't say I was a friend of Brendan Behan's. I mean, I was 18 at the time. What Brendan Behan would do was grab any woman he could talk about. Grabbing pussy. I I knew him. And um, actually, he was a very gentle person, really, fundamentally. I remember him um, as a young woman. We'd sit in a coffee shop and we'd all be talking. And he used to tell us stories about if the teacher hit him in any way, his mother would immediately go up and and announce it. Because I was in the theatre, he wanted his plays to go on. And at that time, is I was I was with the little theatre group, and I don't think that they thought of Brendan Bean as a playwright. I mean, it was it was it, it was Joe Littlewood who got him going. Well, actually, it was Alan Simpson at the Park Theatre. So he enjoyed. But the other thing about Brendan, any time he was at a play, of course, he would disrupt the play. Is that right? Because he wanted his he wanted his play to go on. What would he do? <laughs> oh, he just shouts up. <laughs> he he kind of shout out. But um, yes, he was. I mean, there were a lot of interesting people at that time uh, in the fifties in Dublin all who were frustrated because they felt that their works were not coming out. So, I mean, this is amongst the men. The men just use the women as a kind of status symbol. How do you think things have changed since then? I don't know. I think things have got very bad. 
I mean, the condition of the workers are absolutely abominable. I mean, the zero hours. The um, housing. I never thought when I was young. Yes, they were beggars, but they didn't sleep in the bloody street. And if they were beggars, they were, you might say, known beggars. Everyone knew them, interaction and everything. But now I can go to Galway and go down the street and find young people there sleeping out. And I can pass by and not say anything to them. I think that is the greatest desensitization of humanity that we can actually pass people by and not talk to them, isn't it? Zero contracts, the whole way that the health service has operated. So there was something on the on, on the radio uh, this morning about the doctors at hospitals are getting so full now, is that they have to put some of the patients into private hospitals. When we first had the lockdown, it looked as if everything was going to be wonderful. There wasn't going to be any distinction between private and public health. In a very short time, who got going? The consultants of the private hospitals. And they wanted money because they were allowing the public health patients to come in. And then everyone gets going and they're all fighting for their own little hierarchical wage structure. The fact is that we are a neo-imperialist country. So the lifestyle of people have absolutely been transformed, haven't they? Say in a more positive way, do you think? In a positive way. So that if people are fulfilled, then you would think that they'd have their eyes open and being able to look at other things. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that is so. Every, every, everything all seems to be in little factions now, isn't it? So if I'm trans, then I'm going to be pushing to make sure that my problems are heard. If you take all the young people with special needs, which are horrendous, what the mothers and fathers have to go through looking after the children. So therefore, automatically, then I'm going to shout for my special needs children. We're all shouting for our own fight to be able to get some kind of service for, for a particular group. And I, instead of analysing the whole situation, I mean, why is it that we have multinationals coming in? Multinationals which are making profit on the backs of the workers. Why is it that you have small businesses going on? And they say, well, we can't afford to pay the workers. We, ha we have a very unequal society. We have a society where there's more billionaires than ever before. And yet we have more people down at the bottom than ever before. I mean, I never thought there would come a time when I would know somebody with their children. So they live in a nice house, and then one day the landlady comes along and says, I'm sorry, I've got to sell the house. You've got to go. And where have they got to go to? So they go to the social services and social services put them into a hotel, one room for a whole family. And every week then they have to go up and find out when am I going to be housed, when am I going to... Everyone's on the move. Everyone's on the move. They're all having to go and claim their rights. I mean, the social services, the hospitals... The arts, everything. Actually, the arts are the only thing that I'm very fortunate to be able to live a life of luxury with the A's donor. And that's only because the country was in such a bloody miserable condition that Charlie Hoy suddenly decided that they had to, had to bring in some symbols to show we are a civilised country. And so A's donor was set up. You mentioned there about 
everyone kind of fighting for their own corner and um, kind yes. of looking after their own interests. Do you think that that's a, a um, kind of a symptom of neoliberalism? Well, it happened before neoliberalism, but it's infinitely worse now because we have a hierarchical structure, haven't we? I mean, if you take wages, I don't know if you, if you were following, was it the HSE and suddenly they're getting 400,000 a year or something or other? And what they say is, oh, well, he has to have that because of the competition. Yeah. Or if you take our broadcasters, I mean, uh, b- 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 what do you call them? Tuberty. And he gets 495000 a year. And that is because the advertisers say he's worth that. And we're all controlled by a lot of forces that we know actually nothing about. I mean, and, uh, I've been spending quite a lot of time on the, um, the Dole debates during the lockdown, and it's really fascinating. Have you ever watched that programme? I've watched it for a few times now, not too often, though. It's interesting, isn't it, because I was there for the mother and child, uh, the baby homes and everything, and it was quite surprising, actually, how many TDs. There was this uh, independent, I think he might have been from Cork, his name was what, Brompton or Brompton or something. And he'd be brought up in the um, Dublin Union, in Dublin as a child. And he didn't give out the whole story, but I think the story was that his mother and father is, I think one was a, a Protestant and one was a Catholic. And the whole business of trying to take the children away from him and things, but it was very, very moving. And then, so you would think, oh, yes, surely after all these moving stories, Michael and Mark are going to come along and say, oh, yes, 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 yes. But instead, somebody comes along and says, well, now we've got to think about it because I think it should only be the mothers who were in there for more than six months. And if they were in there for an hour or something, and who is dictating all this? I wish the civil servants were there. So they would be the ones on their computers coming along and saying, oh, I don't think you can say that, uh, Mr. Martin. Absolutely not, because that means it's going to be five billion a year. I mean, the same as the, as the um, student nurses. And that was perfectly reasonable. Student nurses there, front line, we all clap every day for them and whatever have you and that they should be paid a proper wage. Civil servants in the background, ooh. You do know, Mr. Martin, that if you pay student nurses, you're going to have to pay student therapists, you're going to have student psychologists, student this and student that, student architects, students in general, and we're going to be broke. So we're never really told who actually is pulling the strings. Are we? Do you think that like, we need some some form of movement to try and deconstruct that a little bit to more to make? A I more don't know whether society? we what we need is actually to read Karl Marx every now and then. That's what you should be doing on our program. Every podcast you start off with, read a little section of Karl Marx. Now, what's interesting, you know, with all this Paris and whatever have you, Karl Marx has said it. He said, in times of crisis, it's the bourgeois. They are going to benefit from it and we're finding the pharmaceutical uh, companies who we have put money in, who's making the money. So there's a whole new layer of, uh, of the bourgeois class. We just have to read these things. Maybe we should just read even a bit from the gospel, which is that if you... It is better uh, it better you have a millstone round your neck than hurt one of these little ones. Now, remember, this is nothing to do with Catholic religion because all these sayings, this happened right from the very beginning. It was not new things. But we should get rid of our prejudices about the words that are good words and just bring them out. What do you think? Sounds good. People's lives are really difficult, aren't they? And society makes their lives difficult because, as I said, I mean, like my son, 
he has to go up to the social thing. His money was taken away from him. And so people are all under terrible stress and strain, aren't they? But they do come out occasionally, the water charges. Everyone came out, didn't they? And I think what one has to do, so that if you do see a little oddball standing in the street giving out a flower, take the flower and have a look at it. And maybe do something. I mean, what I would like you to do, which is contact Simon Coveney, who at the moment is sitting at the UN uh, as part of the Security Council. I mean, what it said is, um, this is a day on which we can all be proud. We bring empathy and partnership, an independent voice, commitment to peace building and peacekeeping. Now, how about writing Simon Coveney and say, hey, empathy and partnership, an independent voice, commitment to peace building and peacekeeping. What about Shannon? Because I don't think actually that we um, tell our politicians enough. Here's another thing. Recent US wars displaced 37 million people around the world in the past 19 years, according to a new study. The question is, who bears responsibility? for repairing the damage inflicted on those displaced. And I put in, I think, what is our responsibility? Now we will have Ireland sitting around the table at the security table. How far has Ireland contributed to these wars? So, a bit like in the old days, a bit like when you went to Mass and you put your 10p in the, in the collection box. Maybe just 10 minutes every day, if people would just say, oh, I'll write to Simon Coveney, or perhaps I'll write to um, Kathleen Connolly, because she's made great speeches, or I'll write to Marty Walsh, who is now part of the team of Biden, who comes from Rossmark, and I'll say, what about Julian Assange? I mean, every day, just do a tiny little thing. But just have a look at the lies that Michal Martin gave to actually get that seat at the UN security. You know, the world thinks that we're a wonderful, empathy, peace-loving, independent voice. That we have to call out the lies. And it doesn't take, doesn't take all that much. I mean, there is a poor old Bridget Boyd Barrett in the doll, who's very good, and he labels it as it is. You know, I'm not saying, are you going to be any happier if you join any of these parties because it's just as much bitchiness and, and careerism did, inside the party. Let's have an independent voice. Were you ever tempted to get into mainstream politics yourself? I was. I was in the official campaign until they threw me out. <laughs> Anywhere I'm in, they always throw me out. <laughs> so I think the important thing is that if you're thrown out, the important thing is it's individuals who are throwing you out. You can still retain the principles of what you want. I mean, like when we were at Green and Common, do you know about Green and Common? Yeah. 19 years. Well, we bloody hell there, I might say. <laughs> All the jealousies and the competitiveness and whatever have you. So a lot of women, they were turned away because so-and-so would be nasty to them. But if you go in to know why you are there, then you stay to be in the political party. Mm. Are you in one? No, I'm not. But why not? Um, well, I don't think that being in a political party would be the best way that I could affect any kind of a positive Operation. change. Quite right, too, because they'll come along and uh, suddenly they could say something, you knock on the door. Because when we were in the official Sinn Féin, always knocked on the door. Commodores were at the door saying, why are you saying this or why are you saying that? The other thing that you could do, which is that if you're watching the um, doll debates and everything, and if you think somebody makes a really good point, drop them a little note and just say, I really enjoyed what you were doing. I don't think we're generous enough, are we really? I don't think we uh, are inclined to actually praise 
enough people if we actually feel that uh, they've made a really good point. Yes, I suppose it's easy to just go along and let things pass by, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'm just I'm saying, 10 minutes a day, and you just have your little list of that day. I mean, I'm sure you get the same thing as me, is you have these people all over the, you know, uh, all the various organisations, so I'm saving somebody from being hanged, or I'm saving somebody there. And you just click on the button and you say, ooh, I've helped that person. And when they come back and say, is that person hasn't hanged, I think, wow. Wow, I've saved a life. <laughs> so all these, you know, I'm not asking everyone to go out and be a revolutionist or anything like that. But I'm saying is, value what you do and treasure the acts that you do and don't be ashamed. I mean, I get really pissed off with people and say, oh, I was on the water march. And that's the end. Or they say, I was at Greenham. And that's the end. And if you agree with me on the, you know, we learn something from there and you, you, you carry on. I mean, they were, what's the thing? Wore the shirt, done that, wore the shirt, got the T-shirt, exactly. <laughs> yes. That might be a nice way to finish up, actually. I think that's a really solid um, take home for everybody who may be listening. Thanks very much for your time today. Well, thanks very much for for you giving me the time. But I just hope that you giving me the time means that my time has been worthwhile. And it's just not another podcast. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anne Little Carolan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is funded by the listeners of the show through Patreon. So if you'd like to become a supporter of the Rebel Matters podcast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters, where you'll also see the various tiers of support, which are all named after our favourite Irish trees. That's all from us this week. A Carter Gale, Soka Jane Kederella, Slanga Foyle, August Kenny Fury.